So here's some exciting news from On Being Studios. We have just released a beautiful new podcast, Poetry Unbound. It's hosted by Padraig Otuma, the wise Irish poet and theologian you may have heard me interview before. Each episode is a short yet unhurried, contemplative yet energizing immersion in a single poem. The first season features poems by Joy Harjo, Tracy K. Smith, Ross Gay, Emily Dickinson, and many more. I'm making Poetry Unbound a ritual for my days. And you can subscribe to Poetry Unbound wherever you find your podcasts. And please join me in sharing this news far and wide. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with astronomer Jill Tarter. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. All right, do you think we can go? Should we do it? Okay, let's just plunge in. Um, do you have any questions of me before we start? Uh, no. Okay. Let's just see what comes out. See what happens. Okay. Um, uh, so I, I, it's, I've been steeping in um, obviously the the biography of you that was written and other interviews you've given, speech, speech, speeches you've given. Um, so this is just going to be a really wide-ranging conversation, but just about the things that you think about and speak about and, and, um, and the life you've lived. I did read, and I think this is in Sarah Skoll's biography, that you first considered the possibility of alien life when you were visiting the Florida Keys as a child, did that did that actual thought cross your mind? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Um, the uh, my aunt and uncle were literally beachcombers, and when I was a small child, we'd <clears throat> we'd visit them um, in uh, Minnesota Key two or three times a year. Yeah, and so I was walking along the beach on this beautiful key, very uninhabited, very dark, so the sky was beautiful. I was walking with my dad, holding his hand, and he was trying to teach me various constellations. And I looked up and I understood that those stars in the sky were like our sun. And and it just seemed absolutely natural to me that on a beach circling one of those Hmm. stars up there, there would be another creature walking along with its parent um, by the edge of an ocean and looking up and seeing our sun as a star in their sky. It just seemed obvious to me. Hmm. So that was my first introduction to thinking about life beyond Earth. Yeah. And I I think you could really see the night sky in the Florida Keys, uh, probably more than is possible now. Um, It wasn't wasn't right. It wasn't so much a tourist destination. No. And of course, that key now is totally overpopulated and not so dark. But back then, it was a beautiful... Um, uninhabited mostly and gorgeous, lovely place. Yeah. Um, I often ask a question at the beginning of my interviews, whoever I'm speaking about, um, about whether there was a religious or spiritual background of one's childhood, however you would describe that now. And I have to say that that picture of you walking along the beach with your father, um, telling you about the stars, um, does does feel like that to me? I don't know. Was there? A, w- w- did you speak about it in terms of these great existential questions that that are associated with whether no, we're alone it, in the universe and all of that? No, uh, not not back then. Mm-hmm. And indeed, that was the kind of spirituality that I've you know embraced in in my life. Yeah, organized religion is is not my thing. Yeah, um, I I went. I was shipped off to Sunday school for a while, and I just could not, couldn't stomach the hypocrisy and asked all kinds of embarrassing questions. And seriously, they asked me not to come back. So, <laughs> Gosh, okay. Well, um, I mean, you, you know, you're always described as a pioneer, and yeah, it's almost hard for me to believe that 
it's it's hard to believe just how you had to be a pioneer just by virtue of being a woman. Um, that you had to take home economics really before you could take woodshop. That you were the only female engineering student in your class at Cornell, and that they locked the women in their dorms from ten really at did. night to six in the they morning. Absolutely did. You know, it was called in loco parentis was the <sighs> policy at Cornell in terms of its young women. Yeah. But they didn't do that to the male students. Oh, no. no and that was so frustrating. I mean, the guys were hanging out in their dorms and, or in a, you know, in a bar working on problem sets and collaborating. And I just wasn't able to be part of that life. Yeah. So it's interesting that as a result, I was never part of a team, right? I mm. never learned how to be a team member until much later in my career. I had to lead a team. And that's too bad because there's a great deal um, that comes from learning how to participate as a team member and learning how to get the best out of your fellow team members and make everybody more successful than they would have been alone. And that was something that today, of course, um, at Cornell Engineering and and every place else is an opportunity that's stressed. But back then, it never happened for me. And I think as a result, I could have done better as a professional in organizing teams and getting the best out of them. Mm. Um, But you did nevertheless become one of the first scientists to embark on this methodical search for um, extraterrestrial intelligence. And I want to just, I want to really understand that before we move forward, um, that you were using... T- tell us well, first of all, was it, yeah, go on. It was a total accident, right? <laughs> okay. I was in graduate school yeah. for a long time. I was raising a young daughter, and it took me a long time to finish graduate school. And I was working on problems having to do with little stars that never actually fuse hydrogen to helium. You were working on brown dwarfs, right? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. And how gas gets stripped out of galaxies in a cluster. It was. All those problems were really intriguing, um, and yet my first year as a graduate student, I had a uh, research associate job, and and that job was to program a new, brand new desktop computer. So first time we ever had a desktop computer. Right. It was big enough that it took two people to get it on the desk, but when you had it, it was all yours. Yeah. And... There was no language for this early computer. You had to program it in octal. That is, you had to set all the ones and zeros mm. to do the uh, 11 instructions that this computer could do. And I did that. I thought it was really fun. Um, and many years later, I was still in graduate school, and now this computer is obsolete. And it was given to... Uh, an astronomer whose name was Stu Boyer, who had a really clever idea of how to use UC Berkeley's radio telescope in Northern California to do SETI observing at the same time that the traditional astronomers were gathering data for other purposes on the sky. And it was clever. It was a really clever idea. And what was exciting to you is that you could use the telescopes to... to, You could do this more than one thing at once with the telescopes. Yes, it's because of the nature of what a radio telescope measures. Right. Um, But he... Stu had no money. He begged and borrowed equipment, and um, someone gave him this old PDP-8S computer, and... He said, well, what the heck do I do with this? I don't know how to use this. Yeah. And somebody pointed out that I was still around and had programmed it when I was an early <laughs> okay. graduate student. So he came to my office and, and recruited me to work on this project. And he mm-hmm. gave me something called the Cyclops Report that was a v- engineering design study that had been done at NASA Ames two summers before yeah. where they brought in a bunch of engineering So, so well, this is 1973, is that right? Or, yeah. Or, yeah yes. Cyclops was 1971. Okay, yeah. Yes, and so the engineers were just giving these, these, you know, large problems and said, how would you solve it if money was no object? 
And so these engineers, given the problem of how would you find extraterrestrial intelligence, led by Barney Oliver from HP Labs, came up with you build a large array of large radio telescopes and listen for signals. So that was Stu's recruiting document, the Cyclops Report, and I read it from cover to cover. I didn't I, I think I stayed up all night to finish okay. And I was so amazed that after millennia of asking priests and philosophers what we should believe about life beyond Earth, here in the middle of the 20th century, we had new tools. Mm-hmm. We had computers. We had radio telescopes. We could actually try and do an exploration to right. see what actually is out there rather than having to settle for somebody else's belief system about what's out there. And that was so profound. Or just having it as an open question mark, right, that couldn't be explored. Well, it could be. That was the the key thing. Right Right at that moment in time and place, it was possible to do an exploration. Yeah. And so I I was astonished. I said, gee, I'm in the right place at the right Mm. time. Mm. We can tackle this question and let's go find out what's out there. So I got hooked, seriously. And, And I thought... Well, there's no more important question I could try and find an answer to as a professional. So I started working on SETI, and I haven't stopped. Some of the ways that I've found it. So one of the people I've interviewed um, is Natalie Vitalia. Oh, yeah. Right? So, so, and I think that that work... um, on looking for habitable planets, the exoplanets is it has been in the news more recently. Um, but I just to to focus in on what you the the piece of this that you were working on is here's this a way you said it that feels very clear to me as a as a as a non astronomer. SETI uses tools of astronomy to find someone else's technology out there. So you're looking rather than looking for planets, you're looking for technologies for s- signals of technologies of. Of, of something engineered, not natural, as an expression of looking of civilizations out there. Is that that's right. We okay. we can't find intelligence at a distance. Yeah. Um, maybe we could define people listening to your podcast as intelligent because they're listening, but it's hard to know that remotely. <laughs> right. Uh, so we've just used technology as a proxy for intelligence, mm-hmm. and we're trying to find places on the sky where. Something has used technology to modify their environment in ways that we could detect over interstellar distances, which are are vast. And I love the work that Natalie has done with Kepler and is now doing um, with uh, Tess and with other new telescopes that are coming on the air to find additional exoplanets and to understand the different ways that you can make a planetary system and to understand that ours is actually not all that common. Yeah. Uh, we lack a particular mass range of planets in our system that are very common elsewhere, super-Earths or mini-Neptunes. Mm. Um, so our the architecture of our solar system is not the run-of-the-mill common architecture out there. And the the amazing thing to me, over my career, is that there have been two enormous game changers. The first being finding planets around other stars, which is right. uh, a discipline that actually SETI started. So back early on in the 70s, we yeah, were saying... Talk about what that, what, how that was a game changer, because I think that's something that people just take for granted now, you know. Well, yeah, when we when we were starting to do SETI, we did not know if other stars had planets. We literally only knew about the nine planets in our own solar system. And so we started holding workshops and bringing in people who built instrumentation and and who were also curious about this question about planets beyond our solar system. And those workshops developed over a number of years. One of the participants was uh, Bill Baruki who eventually led the whole Kepler mission. Right, And he began thinking about finding uh, a planet because a certain fraction of planets would pass in front of their star when being viewed by our telescopes and would cast a shadow and the light from the star would dim. And it would do that periodically. Uh, And he wrote 
a paper with Audrey Summers uh, at the at the epoch where we were doing these workshops, where he suggested that using these transits would be uh, a good way to find planets. And literally, one week shy of 25 years later, hmm. uh, he was able to launch the Kepler spacecraft. So it takes a long time. Right. And you, you had believed and the field had believed that planets would be much more rare, right, than they turned out to be. Well, yeah. At the time, the theory for how planets formed was that two stars had to pass incredibly close to one another. And then material would be pulled out around the equator of one of those stars. And in that material disk, planets could uh, condense. And if this turned out to be the correct theory, then it would be very, very, very rare to have any planets at all because stars don't pass close to one another very often. But that turned out to be the wrong theory, and that was fortuitous for those of us that are interested to know about life beyond Earth because now we know there are more planets than there are stars in the galaxy. That is, every star on average has one or more planets, and so... There's a lot of real estate out there, right? And that, yeah, it's so interesting, that really isn't it? Important. Um, uh, I mean, I I know that's what you mean when you say that this was a game changer in your field, but it's just one of these examples of of how the best possible understanding and intelligence, you know, can completely evolve, um, like within right within a very short span of time. That we see the world one way, and then we see something that changes the, everything we thought we yeah. believed. Yeah, I mean, we do reserve the right to get smarter. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Okay. And yeah. then, the, of course, the other game changer is extremophiles. Yeah. Types of life living in environments on this planet, which when I was a student, I was told were absolutely sterile. No chance of life there. Well, once we develop the tools for recognizing life, it turns out that anywhere that there's even the smallest amount of water, we can find life making a living in all kinds of different ways. And it's amazing to me. There's, there's a, a bacteria uh, living in the waters of nuclear, the cooling waters of nuclear reactors in that huge radiation environment. There's, right. there's life that's living in boiling battery acid around volcanoes. Mm. Um, there's life living in ice. There's life living at the bottom of the ocean around uh, hydrothermal vents and not just microbial life great huge tube worms and a whole ecosystem. So uh, I think that part of the lesson there is we need to stop projecting what we think onto what we don't yet know. So we were totally wrong. And now extremophiles and exoplanets suggest there's just a huge amount of potentially habitable environments out there. I do think that what, what we're learning about our earthling brains also, though, suggests that that's a hard thing for us to do, right? Not to project uh, definitely, assumptions. Definitely. Yeah. But we, you know, we need to mm-hmm. distinguish between what we know and what we think is but have not yet uh, verified and right. found evidence for. That's actually a lesson for life at large. I mean, tell so I want to understand this better. So the discovery of extremophiles that life can happen in these places that the where the assumption would have been that that was an absurd thought. So so what what that changed is that we had a much more we had a sense of fr- the fragility of life that that's really been turned on its head. So I mean, is that is that correct? It's that's correct. Okay. And, and so we're really beginning to appreciate what billions of years and Darwinian evolution can accomplish. And it's extraordinary. Uh, absolutely. So in studying extremophiles on this planet, is that shifting the way, I don't know, the way you're thinking about what it means to be searching for life? What kinds of signals you're looking for? Or what is that how civilization? I think it shifts mm-hmm. where we're looking. Okay. More than what we're looking for. Um, so we had this preconceived bias that where we should look is uh, in the vicinity of stars like our sun and at uh, 
planets like the Earth, right? And that's where we might find life. But now um, we understand that around all kinds of different stars, and even around our sun, when we consider the ice-covered moons of the outer solar system and find liquid, salty water oceans under that ice, that life can, in fact, be robust enough to occupy those niches and evolve to be well-suited and prolific in them. Hmm. So we've just broadened our horizons of where we might find life. We still are wedded to the idea of liquid water because all biology that we know here on this planet uses that as a solvent. But at least some of the community has begun to think out of the box or or more broadly about what life is and could there be life using some solvent other than water or some um, anchoring element other than carbon. And so, yeah. And then that really changes everything, right? But it, it does. This weird <laughs> life is, is an interesting concept. And it's indeed um, the National Academy of Sciences study on this predicted that it not only might exist on some other world, with different uh, environmental conditions, but it also might exist on this planet. Mm. And Mm. in certain regions, particularly regions that are very limited in their access to water, uh, some other type of life may have outcompeted life as we know it. And we haven't found it simply because all the tools that we use to find life are based on life as we do know it, DNA, chemistry. Mm. Um, I can imagine that. I, I mean, that was the, was astrobiology even a term when you were? I can imagine that just the field that you entered and the variations on, um, well, on astronomy, but everything that surrounds that. That 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 that's also so very different from when you. When you were being locked into your dormitory in Cornell <laughs> for ten to six, <laughs> certainly, certainly was, and and we so astrobiology didn't exist, but something called exobiology oh. did, led by a scientist named John Billingham at NASA Ames Research, and those folks, starting with the Viking mission in the seventies, were thinking about life on other worlds. So, the Viking. Viking 1 and and 2 landers had life detection instrumentation on them as well as um, instruments to study the the geology of the planets. And so people were thinking about life somewhere else. There was a huge hiatus between Viking, whose life detection experiments on the surface uh, were not successful, and the rise of astrobiology. And it it had to do, I think, in large part with the discovery of extremophiles on this world and our desire to to build techniques and technologies that could study them. And then after quite a long hiatus, folks got really wound up about the potential for life beyond Earth as we started to find planets around other stars. And the, the great thing from my point of view is that because this is a new field, right, we're mm-hmm. creating it as going along, it isn't a field that's siloed, isolated, and stuffed up at the top with, excuse me, old white male scientists. <laughs> okay. Right? So yeah. we're, getting, we're getting the best and the brightest of, the young, mm-hmm. of our young students interested in this subject because they can see that there might be, in fact, within their careers, fabulously exciting discoveries. And actually, I think maybe the best of the best of mm. the young astrobiologists are women. Mm. Right? Uh, so they're, they're not just populating the traditional biological labs, but they're really interested in biology elsewhere. That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
I wish I weren't so old because I think this century is going to tell us about life beyond Earth in any one of a number of ways. And I'm not going to be around to, to experience those discoveries, probably. But it's, it's an exciting time. You know, um, I was a I was I was I was a big lover of science fiction, and um, I remember, um, you know, at, at one of those ages where you're starting to, to to kind of meet really big ethical existential questions. I remember someone floating this idea. I mean, I grew up in the '60s, so people were starting to think about space travel, if not, you know, and I mean that you know that era. Somebody proposing that one of the reasons we'd never found any other civilizations is that any civilization sophisticated enough to travel into space or transmit signals we could understand would have self would have destroyed itself by way of that same technological sophistication, right? Of course, this is nuclear arms race years, but I I, right. I, I remember being so. Um, just horrified at that thought. I can't remember how old I was, but I I, I didn't know what to do with it. And um, I I want to. So I'm, this is a this will make sense. It's not a non sequitur, but the Drake equation is really important to you and your field. And I I do want to talk about that because it feels like something that the rest of us should at least know exists. But I found you know I found this idea one of the things in the in the Drake equation. One of the one of the um, aspects of it. It's about the number of technological civilizations we might be able to detect, and one of those things uh, is the is longitude. Um, no, longevity. Longevity, longevity. Yes, um, and which seems to me a way of pointing at that science fiction childhood question. Um, yeah, actually, that's one of the reasons that I am always enthusiastic about talking about SETI mm-hmm. and working on the problem because. This is um, something that most people probably don't comprehend, but in order for us to be successful and detect evidence of someone else's technology, they have to be clo- that technology has to be close to us, not only close in space, but close in time. That is, they have to be co-temporal with our technology over the 10 billion year history of our galaxy. And statistically, the only way that that's going to happen is if, on average, technological civilizations last a long time, that their longevity is great. So from my point of view, that's what a successful detection of someone else's technology would tell us, that it's really possible to have a long future. Yeah in spite of the challenges that we see today, I think that's the the best message that the detection of someone else's technology could bring to us, that it's possible to survive your technological adolescence. Yeah, right. They won't tell us how, probably, Mm -hmm. but the fact that somebody else made it through, Mm -hmm. I think, is an important and motivating factor. And... um there are seven factors in the Drake equation. I mean, one of the things you say, um, and maybe you could say a little bit about that. I mean, do you think that's interesting, important for other people to understand, or am I wrong about that? Well, the Drake equation is mm-hmm. a great agenda for a meeting. Um, it's not an equation with which you can calculate anything. Okay. Because the various factors, like the rate at which stars form, um, the number, the <clears throat> the fraction of stars that have planets, well, we know those numbers now, right? From astronomy, we are beginning to understand on average how many planets in each planetary system might be habitable. But in terms of the next term, which is the fraction of those habitable planets where life actually begins, is totally open. There was a literature search done a few summers ago Uh, trying to look at the guesses at that fraction. And they're hugely unconstrained with with numbers that have been published in papers that vary by 120 orders of magnitude. I mean, it's really just complete um, 
unknown there. And then the fraction of, in, of life that develops intelligence and the fraction of intelligent life that develops a civilization that uses a technology that we could possibly detect, um, those are complete unknowns. And lastly, the most important question yeah. In, in, in my mind, is how long do these technologies persist? Right. So it's a great way to organize our thinking, but nobody can calculate an answer because there are so many unknowns. Um, although one of the interesting things that you say is that in physics, I think this is one way you've said, in physics we have this funny way of counting. We count one to infinity. And so right now we only have one example of civilization as we define it, intelligence, technological advance as we define it. But you've said that the moment a second example is found, then there is reason to believe that there are many. That's right. Number two is the all-important number. Yeah, that's so interesting. So we don't know whether life on this planet is due to hugely, hugely improbable contingencies. Uh, that aren't going to line up and reproduce themselves somewhere else. But the moment that you find a second example of life, then you know that this is just the results of physics and chemistry. Hmm. And it will happen elsewhere whenever the conditions are similar. So it, number two would mean that... that uh, intelligent life or technological civilizations are widespread. So in our own solar system, we are looking at missions that will explore other planets and moons of the solar system, looking to see if there's additional life. Now, if we find it either extinct or extant, um, we will have to ask a second question, and that is, is the life that we found off of Earth related to life on Earth? Hmm. Because early in the formation of the solar system, there was a lot of rock swapping going on. Right, right, right. right. A lot of collisions that uh, were energetic enough to blast rocks off the surfaces of the various um, newly forming planets. And if... If life existed on one of them, it might have hitched a ride as microbes on a piece of rock that landed on Earth and, and seeded life here. Or it could have gone in the other direction. Life from Earth could have hitchhiked and found itself on another planet or moon of our solar system. So we need to be very careful and try and decide whether the life that we found is the result of a second genesis, independent of life on Earth. And in that case, we have much optimism that life will happen everywhere. Or is that life related to us and is an example of what we call panspermia, spreading life around? In okay. which case, yeah. it really doesn't give us much uh, reason to believe that life would be ubiquitous and plentiful oh, beyond got it. our solar system. So if it's related to it, I mean, somewhere you said we, or said we are part of a billion-year lineage of wandering stardust. Um, yes. So you're saying if it turns out that it's related, then that, that one to infinity uh, thinking doesn't quite apply. We really no, need it. No, it would be uh -huh. one and 1.1. 1 .1, okay. All right. One, two. <laughs> yeah. So we're, you know, when we, when we explore our solar system, we're really interested to know, is there any life? And number two, uh, is it independent? Mm. Was it a second genesis? Um, so you were um, the inspiration and to some degree the model for the character Jodie Foster played in the movie Contact, um, Ellie Arroway, which was based on a book by Carl Sagan. Right. Um, and of course, in the movie version... Of the story of what you've been engaged in your whole life, um, there is a beacon detected from space, and humanity builds the machine to find it, and something um, wondrous happens. Um, and I don't like—I I feel like I have to ask you this question, and I also 
feel that even in the in the time we've been speaking uh, right now, uh, the answer is not obvious. Um, but uh, you know, the question is is you know ha, is I, I, it's hard to imagine that it hasn't been that there haven't been disappointing days or seasons of your life that you're that this has been the the work you've done and you've created this incredible you've been part of the creation of this project and that we have not yet found uh, what what you have helped us create the capacity to search for. Actually, the the thing there is to understand how big and vast the universe is. Yeah, and how many and that holds you all the time. Things. That knowledge you you you're always Absolutely. always I, aware of that. Yes, mm-hmm. and and so when people say, "Well, aren't you discouraged? You haven't found anything yet." I'm going. Yeah, we have hardly begun to look. I did an exercise when Seti was 50 years old, uh, so that's 2010. I said, okay, even if the right thing to be looking for is electromagnetic signals, and that might not be the right thing. Mm -hmm. There might be other things that would be appropriate technosignatures for us to find. But even, let's just say, electromagnetism, signals, waves are the right thing to be looking for. How big is the search space that we have to explore in order to find another uh, technological civilization? And there are nine different parameters, and I made estimates of how what would constitute a sort of exhaustive search of each of those nine parameters. And I rolled it all up and said, okay, this is my search space, this, these nine-dimensional parameters. And I'm going to say that the volume of my search space is equal to the volume of all the oceans on Earth. And what fraction of that have we sampled and explored in 50 years? And numerically, the, the equivalent um, is looking for fish, and scooping one 12-ounce glass of water out of all the Earth's oceans and not finding a fish. Uh, it's an right. experiment that could have worked, but it didn't succeed the first time you tried it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that as a result of sampling that one glass, you're going to decide that there are no fish in the ocean. Right. right? You're going to say, I need to search more of the ocean's volumes. And that's exactly where we are. I mean, we've been working on this for a while, and we've invented new tools to help us. But indeed, we've hardly begun to search. One glass of water out of all the world's oceans is not something that should be discouraging. Yeah, It simply says, there's more to be done. And of course, we're very fortunate that much of the improvement in the way that we're able to conduct these searches is the result of improving computer technology. And yeah. that's uh, improving at an exponential rate. Right. And we definitely want to grab onto that because every factor of two right, is, is a huge help and the best things happen in the last doubling. Yeah. So yeah. we're looking forward to exploring uh, the parameter space for signals much more quickly and extensively and with uh, perhaps the aid of, of neural networks and, and artificial intelligence looking for the kinds of signals that we haven't been looking for. Oh, you know, until now, all of us that are working in this field talk, program a computer and we say, computer, tell me if this particular type of pattern in frequency and time is in the data that we've just taken. Well, that's a lot of um, suppositions about what a distant technology might choose to do. Now we can conceive of building a machine intelligence that will simply be able to tell us in these data there's information. Mm. Not that a particular pattern is there Mm. that we've predefined, but just that there's information content Mm. in this data you've just taken, and let's go examine it. And that's a huge, that's a huge change of strategy brought about by improved technology. Yeah. Yeah. um, You've also said that we, 
I mean, the twentieth century also allows us to build bigger glasses, right? That are, um, I suppose, that's, that's also right. connected to that's the, right. the computing and the telescopes. Um, there's also this interesting reality. Uh, you often quote Philip Morrison saying, "SETI is the archaeology archaeology of the future." That if we if we do receive uh, a, a, a transmission from another technological civilization. It will be. It will. It will tell us about their past, right? That's right. That's the tyranny of light speed. Yeah, right. It's going to take this signal a while to get from a distant star to our telescopes. Mm. Mm. I'd love to talk a little bit about you know how you. Walk- oh, but actually, oh, sorry. The the second piece of that quote. So that's the archaeology piece. Mm-hmm. Information that we receive will be telling us about the uh, the the transmitter when that signal was sent. So, but that's fine. I mean, people worry that, well, you know, if they're so far away, you're not going to be able to ask them a question and you'll have to wait so long for an answer. But that's not the right way to think about that. Think about the ancient Greeks and Shakespeare, Mm. right? Mm. They transmit information to us, which is extraordinarily useful. Right. And it propagates forward in time. Even though we can't ask them any questions in return, we still learn a lot about what life was like in ancient Rome or in England when Shakespeare was writing. So the archaeology piece is pretty straightforward. It's the mm. and their archaeology of the future. Ours. Right. Yeah, it's, it's right. the future piece. That, right is hard to get your head around, but it's exactly what I was saying before, that if you succeed in detecting a signal that has a message, then the longevity factor for technological civilizations has to be large. It We are not going to succeed if, on average, technological civilizations pop up and turn themselves off or do themselves in in 100 years. There's not going to be another one out there that's close enough to us, uh, us and co-temporal. Right. So right. by virtue of succeeding in finding a signal, we know that it's possible for us to have a long future because someone else has done so. Mm. And, and so that's why I like both parts of that lovely phrase from Phil Morrison yeah. about the archaeology and about our future. It kind of gets at... Um, what I, I what I wanted to ask you next, which is um, just curious, how you think you walk through the world differently through your lived experience. I mean, one thing I'm very intrigued by is the way you use language. I mean, I use the word species a lot, and people make fun of me um, or speak of humans, but you speak of earthlings. Yes. <laughs> and um, so, but I'm just, so I'm curious, you know, but how does this work you do in the, with this cosmic sense of uh, space and time and possibility? Um, kind of inform the way you move through the world as an earthling, but also as a scientist? Well, I think that it's inevitable if you think about the kinds of exploration that we're trying to do, that you continue your thought process uh, into wondering Mm. what might someone else be like. And it's because life on this planet has been profoundly shaped by the planet and life in turn has profoundly altered the planet. Uh, We are a product of this earth. And so something else out there that has technological capability will be a product of their planet, their world. And so their evolution is not likely to produce something that's like us. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the other, what might be there, uh, it has the uh, philosophical uh, equivalence of holding up a mirror to every individual on this planet and saying, see, all of you, you're all the same when right. compared to something right. out that. there that had evolved independently. Hmm. And so... I really like the potential of SETI for changing people's perspective and trivializing the differences among humans 
differences that we're so willing to shed blood over, mm-hmm. when indeed we are all human, we are all earthlings, we are all the same compared to something else. And I really, really try to get people to adopt that perspective because if we can and if we do, then we can organize globally to solve these vast challenges that face our us and our planet, challenges that don't uh, respect national boundaries, mm-hmm. challenges that we are going to have to solve globally. And if you see yourself as an earthling before you see yourself as a Californian, yeah. um, then I think that sets the stage for tackling really difficult challenges on a global scale. You, you've spoken about... Um your love of really the creativity of the scientific enterprise um, uh, and that you see in our time science providing raw material for all kinds of new forms of expression also in the humanities. I kind of also hear you pointing at that um, and that you as a, as a scientist you never you get to never ask stop asking why. <laughs> Yes. You never have to grow up, right? There are always, you can keep asking questions and then you can try and find answers, mm-hmm. which will probably lead to a lot more questions. Mm-hmm. I, I, when we teach science in school to young students, I think we do a really vast disservice because the students come out thinking that science is all about a bunch of facts. Yeah. And you have to memorize them, and, and then you'll understand science. And, and it, it isn't. I mean, science is all about finding answers to questions that no one else has yet found an answer to. It's about puzzle solving. It's about yeah. mystery. It's about challenges. It's fun. I mean, it is so rewarding to understand something for the first time that no one else has been able yet to understand. And to pass that information along and then go on to the next question that is uh, inspired by what you've just understood. So I think we need to tell our students that science is a fantastic way of spending a career and having fun and being challenged and never being bored. Yeah, I've, I've spoken with mathematicians and physicists who, you know, point out the difference between arithmetic or, or just the math that people learn in school and the the beauty and 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 excitement of mathematical thinking. I feel like what you have is this kind of, you know, cosmic thinking um, based on the science you do. Yeah. Um, I like to give people homework assignments at the end of a lecture and tell them as soon as they get back to their devices to open up their uh, profiles and change them so that the first thing they say about themselves is that they're an earthling and then to start (laughs) acting like that. So this, this cosmic point of view, seeing yourself in a much larger context of both space and time um, is I think really going to be fundamental to us having um, a long future. I think that Caleb Scharf, who's the chairman of the astrobiology department at Columbia, has a lovely phrase, like one of Philip Morrison's. He says that on a finite world, and the Earth is definitely finite, um, a cosmic perspective is is not a luxury. It's actually a necessity. Hmm. So I keep trying to encourage people to think about themselves in a larger framework. I'm curious um, how that framework that you have like shifts the way you follow something like politics, which especially right now in the oh. in the adolescence of the of Earth is. Um, you know, it's 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 quite it's it, it feels very adolescent. I mean, it's it and people are fixated on it, right? Um, oh, yes. I just and yes. I I wonder I wonder how you bring this framework to something like that to politics. Yeah, let's say to politics right now. 
how you well, watch it, how you take it seriously, what you do with it. Um, yeah, mostly I try not to get too upset by it. Hmm. The um, You can go back and find video clips of politicians uh, going back to Reagan, at least, on both sides of the aisle. And they will, in one way or another... Uh, posit that suppose we were aware of an alien fleet coming to Earth and posing an existential threat. Wouldn't that be a reason for governments and individuals everywhere to unite to protect our planet against this potential invasion? Mm-hmm. And I think that, indeed, the right political question to ask now is that we are at huge risk of losing the planet in the form that we currently enjoy it, and that that threat ought to be enough to cause us to wake up and start to cooperate to make things better. Yeah. So the fact that a number of different political arenas deny that there is an existential crisis right now is incredibly frustrating to me. And I simply try to keep having conversations around this topic and trying to help people to understand that the threat is real. Right. The thing that, that must that, unite us is <clears throat> is upon us. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious if you if you watch if you like science fiction. I mean, so many so many physicists in particular I speak with were very formed by Star Trek. I mean, but do, is this? And I mean, you were you. This movie was kind of very much about the world you move in, and in some ways about you. Um, how do you see that? Or just do you enjoy it? I actually read a huge amount of science fiction as a young person. Uh-huh. Um, and this was the the classics, Arthur C. Clarke yeah. and Robert Heinlein and Asimov. Um, and I, I really liked losing myself in, in their worlds. Uh, I don't read so much science fiction now because I find it more intriguing and interesting to actually do the science. Hmm. Um, but I think it's, um, it's been very useful to help us to think about life as we don't yet know it. Um, science fiction writers are fantastic at dreaming up um, different worlds, different species, and different um, rationales for how they live their lives. And so it's it's a way of uh, thinking about what we don't yet conceive of. It's like art, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. At the SETI Institute, we have an artist in residence. Program. I know, I read about that. Yeah, and uh, I think that's been extremely valuable because we're dealing with the unknown. We're dealing with things that we can't really conceive of, uh, but the artists can Mm. help us think Mm. beyond the boundaries of what we already know. And I think it's been really pleasurable for the last 10 years to have these artists who um, can reimagine the work that we're doing and let us look at it from a different lens, more creatively. And they've produced some, A, very visually pleasing things, and B, Uh, things that uh, allow us to interact with the public in in creative new ways and explain what we're doing in in new ways. And that that convergence just makes all the more sense when you think about how, you know, what you're describing is that in these decades we've, science has had to, is having to um, rethink and reimagine definitions of things like life and vitality, intelligence. As, as you think, yeah, about but what that's what's great for. about science. Yeah, we're willing to do that. Yeah, we're willing to and, but change. To, and to do what that, and to do that, 
in companionship with artists is, is, is sounds so so exciting. Yeah, it's it's a it's been a very good program that that Charlie Lindsay started uh, a decade ago, yeah. and um, I've really enjoyed my interactions with uh, with our artists. I'm working with a composer in Mexico right now um, called Felipe uh, Santiago, and he his project, if we can get it funded, is to ask people around the world to send him a bit of song that's associated with their um, cultural systems, songs that refer to life or death or love or all of these universal emotions. And then he proposes to take those human voices and songs and compose a symphony from them. And that symphony will be called Earthling. And I... I like to imagine that if we actually do this, that, say, the first colonists going to the moon or mm. to Mars might be able to take uh, a musical representation mm. of our planet at this time with them as they leave the planet. I, I, I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned that. I, I listened, there was a little clip of something of his on, maybe on your website or somewhere, and I, I thought maybe we'll find a way to put it in the show. Yeah. Yeah. I think the clip came from an event that we did at Montalvo uh-huh. um, uh, more than a year ago, and it was wonderful. It was yeah. a fantastic cellist playing in duet with the uh, new electronic music that Philippe was creating. And it just, I, I really liked it. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, it's, not, it's not a new golden record, but it's kind of like a 21st century offering. Uh, yes. That would be indeed. sent out. <laughs> indeed. And unlike the golden record, we can, ass- we assume or a- anticipate that this musical offering will not just talk about shiny, pretty, good things, but it will have um, passages that are evocative of sorrow and death and grieving mm-hmm. and um, the negative parts of, of life as we know it on this planet. Because, of course, the golden record, there was no one that was sick or ill or Gosh, hungry. I'd never thought about that. You're right. It and was just very much predicted. a triumphant... Well, we were like that back then, right? That's how we predicted yeah. everything. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. in fact, we're more complex than that. And mm-hmm. so I'm really hoping that if we can pull this off, that the symphony will have just so much emotional breadth mm. about what it's like to be human. Um. So, what? What I mean, you you do acknowledge um, that one possibility of this search is that we don't find anything; that we are alone. How do you think about that? What What meaning does that hold for you um, at this point, after all these decades of working with that, with this? Well, I'm not really anywhere close to drawing that conclusion at the moment. I mm-hmm. think, as I said before. We've just barely begun to um, to search, and uh, we haven't done a significant search. And it, it has to really, that conclusion that we're alone uh, is so profound that the, um, the significance of the search and the systematic coverage of all possibilities has to be extraordinary in order to support that profound conclusion. So... Um, I guess I'm curious just about the question itself, you know? Um, yeah, well, again, if it should turn out that this is the only intelligent life, at least uh, in our part of the galaxy, then I think it's really important. It's a responsibility of every intelligent being on this planet to make sure that this does not um, go away, that we manage right. to right. Uh, sustain intelligent life 
on this oasis. <laughs> it's, it, does, it creates this huge responsibility, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This cosmic responsibility. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of just wanted to, to, I mean, this just following on what we've been talking about, just how this life you've lived, the, this, the science you do, what you see and understand, and, and also I think by nature of who you are, how much you're formed by the questions you're asking, right? The, the constant holding of the why. Um, how that... Um, how that shapes the way you, you know has has evolved the way you think about what it means to be human, and I realize that's a huge question. But and and we've been talking around it. But uh, where would you start answering that? Where would you start to think about that out loud? Oh, what it means to be human. What? How that's um, changed? You for know, you I also. Uh, yeah. okay. To me, finding another dark sky. And looking up at the cosmos, at all of those stars, it is just so awesome. And to think about the fact that humans have somehow managed to figure out what makes all of those beautiful stars and what's going on. Mm. And, and, and somehow, somehow our brain has pieced together a 13.8 billion year history of our universe and how intimately we're connected to those distant times and places. You know, the, the calcium in our bones and the iron and the hemoglobin in our blood, they were all cooked up in, in um, a massive star that blew itself up billions of years ago. And, <laughs> I mean, we are literally, you know, as Carl Sagan's, we're made of stardust mm. and that's quite literal. And, and so, to me, being human is about appreciating the fact that we are so closely connected to this much bigger idea of a, an evolving universe. I mean, I often say it takes, it takes a cosmos to make a human. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I think, you know, I... I have bad days and, and I get upset with people and um, I think that some other individual's ideas are wrong or stupid even. But I don't usually act out on them um, mm -hmm. because I really think that it's more important to uh, appreciate this cosmos and, and our connection to it than to fuss about trivial, small concerns. And so I spend my time trying to answer a big question. Mm. And hopefully uh, the teams that are working on SETI searches will someday be able to share with humanity, uh, all humanity, a really important answer to a very old question. And and if you're working on that, how could you uh, how could you not be inspired? How could you mm. not um, find satisfaction in being alive at the right time with the right technology to really probe something that's larger than we are? Mm. Wait, what 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 is that single question? What if you do do? It sounds like you do condense it to condense it to what is it? What is the question? Well, it's are we alone? It's right, okay. and that yeah. that that has a range. For my astrobiology colleagues, that means is there any pond scum out there? Right, any mm. microbial life, mm. any kind of biology. Mm. And for me, I'm I'm more interested in the mathematicians than the microbes. So mm. I <laughs> want to know whether any of that life elsewhere has evolved into technological civilizations. Yeah. And it, it, you know, it's just, it's really so stupendous to conceive of life evolving over billions of years from the first reproducing biological molecule 
into the diversity of life that impacts this whole planet. And so, yeah, somewhere you it, said you called us a primordial mixture of hydrogen and helium that evolves for so long that it begins to ask where it came from. Yes, which sounds yes. right. Which which can sound like a diminishing, but actually, it's just an extraordinary thought. Yeah, I mean, no other species on the planet today can use its senses and its tools to understand that long cosmic evolution and where we came from. And it, it's astonishing that life would eventually produce something that could study the cosmos mm. and wonder about where we came from. Yeah. Well, this has just been beautiful, extraordinary conversation. Thank you so much for well, what you do. you're very welcome, Krista. And um, I very much look forward to sharing this with our really diverse, far-flung audiences. Thank you. Right. Well, you're, you're very welcome. And I suspect that in your audiences, there are people who are much better philosophers than I am. I simply have a question we, that's important. It's been around throughout human history. And I have the opportunity to try and use tools to answer that question. So I'm, I'm not very philosophical at heart. Oh, I just no. enjoy the opportunity to try and move forward with this one overarching question. Oh, it's been fantastic, and actually you're very philosophically wise, and I'll just thank you on behalf of all of us for pursuing that question. (laughs) Well, it's my pleasure. It really is. Okay, we'll let you know when this is going to be airing, and uh, yeah, thank thank you you again. Thanks for making the time for this. Okay. All right. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye.